We're going to return to the New Testament this morning. Stop in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. I know we don't often jump right into the middle of a letter without taking some time to really examine the background and the context of that letter. We'll do some of that, but I think it's important for us to be reminded sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, of who we really are, of our identity as Christians, because who we are, our fundamental identity as disciples of Jesus determines how we live. It determines who we will be. Uh, One night this last week, I I scooped my daughter in her arms. It had been a really tough day. Exam questions were were hard, and she wasn't overly confident of some of her answers, and there were just other uh, little things that happened throughout the day that made it a real downer. And so I, I embraced her, and I said, Honey, whatever has happened today, that does not change my love for you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what has happened, you are loved by your Heavenly Father and you are loved by me. And just in the, in the little smile right before bed, you could see a little, a little renewal, a little more confidence uh, to face the next thing, to face whatever the next day might bring. And we're reminded of who we are. It enables us to face the next thing. Uh, the next day with a little more confidence, a little more resolve, a little more hope. Uh, Because we are loved by God, our identity is bound up uh, in union with our Savior. I think all the great doctrines of the faith, all of the truths of our salvation are accomplished in Christ. We're spiritually joined to Jesus. There could be nothing more important than this, no greater reality than this. But the life of the Christian is now a life that's defined by and hidden in Christ. Um, So the Apostle offers really one of the the richest summaries of this union in Galatians chapter 2. Paul has just red hot mad at what's happening uh, in the church throughout this region. They've heard the gospel of God's grace. Uh, These Gentiles have now received, they've heard this message that you know, salvation is, is by faith in Jesus. They can be at peace uh, with God. Joint heirs to the promises. And some have received this message, but are quickly you know, going back and forgetting their new identity. Uh, going back to this performance-based, law-driven righteousness in an attempt to earn the favor of God. Or maybe an attempt to earn the, the favor, the acceptance of the religious leaders. You know, if they're happy, then God is happy and we must be doing something right. Uh, That's no gospel, says the apostle. Uh, That is not good news. It is terrifying and condemning. Uh, And Paul had to approach, uh, just before this passage, Paul has has to approach his brother in the Lord Peter with this very issue, who's proclaiming, believing a gospel that's freely given to all, but then acting as if that didn't change anything between Jew and Gentile. So Paul has to tell his brother, and uh, we will go back to Peter's second letter eventually, hopefully in the next month or so, um, but that his actions are not in step with the truth of the gospel. A gospel that brings Jew and Gentile together, a gospel that breaks down these barriers, brings Jew and Gentile together by faith. 
And so then in, in 2.15, through the end of that chapter, he elaborates on what this truth of the gospel is. Um, no one is declared innocent. No one is justified and free by the righteous ruler of all creation in their attempts at obeying the law. So I'm going to read from verse 15 the end of the chapter. Our focus will be on verse 20. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ and a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We'll stop there this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do thank you for this, your word. We pray, Lord, that you would imprint this word upon our hearts and upon our minds, and that you would help us, Holy Spirit, that you would give me strength of body and spirit to speak faithfully, and that we as your people would be attentive in these moments, reminded of who we are in the Lord Jesus, and moved moved to follow after our Savior in love and gratitude. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fairly young, fairly young billionaire Elon Musk, he's been in the news a little bit more lately, and I basically told the state of California that uh, he was going to open up the Tesla headquarters in California, or he was going to move the Tesla headquarters out of California. And uh, so he opened up, and the state said, uh, okay, you're an essential business now. Um, But keep an eye on that social distancing. Um, But Elon Musk is considered by many to be a very successful entrepreneur. Um, He said his, his goals in establishing Tesla and SpaceX and um, Solar City, his goals were to change the world and to uh, help humanity. But to do that, you have to keep things open. You have to keep moving. You have to keep innovating. Um, You have to keep, uh, well, moving faster, farther, looking for um, cleaner technologies. Uh, And it's a lot of work. Uh, In his case, it was a lot of investment risk, destroyed relationships along the way. Um, But Elon Musk uh, works, and he works hard He's determined in his goal uh, to help humanity. And if technology is is the source for this and and the savior to do this, he mentioned back in 2018 that he's working 17 hours a day, 120 hours a week, sleeping on the floor of the Tesla factory uh, to keep things moving. And I think Elon Musk would, would probably agree with the work smarter, not harder idea. But to achieve his goals and to achieve the financial I was going to say freedom, but maybe the financial power and influence, uh, it takes determination, work. I think for most of us, you know, we don't have to be working 17 hours a day to understand this. 
We are workers. We're earners. We want to do something for what it is we receive. And even though in our rebellion against God that fuels selfishness and laziness and entitlement, we've been made to work. Enjoy the work of our hand, just as the Lord enjoys the works of His hands. But when we take this God-given, God-infused work ethic and apply that to our relationship to Him, then we hit a dead end. If we have to work for and earn what we receive from God, where does that leave us? I mean, He is the Holy One. He is the righteous judge in all holiness and and wisdom and, and goodness. So if our best work, our best attitudes, our best words are but filthy rags before a God of all perfection, where does that leave us? And God, in His kindness, He shows us uh, where we end up. He tells us there's no fear of God before the eyes of men, that the wages of sin is death. That is what we have earned. And since Genesis 3, all we could ever earn before Him is physical, spiritual death for our failure to obey the one who has made us for his glory. And so Paul reminds the church that no one is justified before God. No one can escape this sentence of death by working for it. The works of the law is not gospel. It's not good news. You say, well, nobody's perfect. That's what we hear. And yeah, that's true. And that's the problem. God's standard is Himself. He is absolute perfection and holiness. And so pleasing Him would would mean perfect obedience in every thought, in every word, in every deed. And so we're we're in trouble. Because God's law says that it is death for the law breaker. It has to be. The Holy One cannot share His presence with sin as light can share no space with darkness. So here's the thing. <clears throat> Most of you know everything that I've just said. Um, you know it well. And you believe it. Um, that we're not justified by our own efforts in keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus, who is the perfect law keeper. Um, but do we live and respond to our failures to keep the law like we believe this is true? Here's what I mean. When when do you feel the most spiritual? When when do you feel like maybe things between you and the Lord are good or growing? Uh, That God is a little happier with you? Here's what I've caught in myself. I think it's true for so many of us. But it comes after we have sinned. After we've broken God's law. Maybe grievously. And so what do we do as followers of Jesus? Well, we, we confess our sin before the Lord. Maybe we confess it multiple times within a 24-hour period. And we, we open up our Bibles and we start, to, we start to read with a frenzy. And maybe we reach out to someone that we haven't you know, talked to before. Uh, go back to church. Uh, and... and And all of these are good things. But what is the heart attitude underneath? I need to get back in. I need to relieve the burden. I need to 
work. I need to earn the favor and smile of God once again after this disobedience to the law. So church family, we need a gospel. We need, we need the good news that does not turn the smile of God from us even in the midst of our sin. The good news that we have a law keeper, that someone has died for what we have earned. That's the best news. And we really believe this. I mean, really believe it from the heart. I mean, that's evidence that we're different people. That we have a whole new identity. And that's what Paul describes here in verse 20. And as we look at verse 20 with the preceding verses, I want us to see the life that Paul once lived and the life that he now lives. So what's true of Paul is true of us in the Lord Jesus. There's a life we once lived, identity we had, and now there's a new one. Okay? A, new, a new life. We were enslaved to the law in every attempt to turn God's smile and favor upon us. That, that's, that's the life we once lived. Now think of this, coming from Paul, who is a Pharisee. This man knows all about this. All about striving to follow after the, the written code and the oral code. And yet he says, through the law, I died to the law, in verse 19. That could mean a couple different things. The law, the law's not dying. Um, Paul, Paul is dying with respect to the law. So he's no longer under the power of the law. He knows that it cannot justify him. It cannot save. So he's dead to it. It could be one, one way to read that. But it could also mean that the law shows him his sin and the resulting death that comes from disobedience. Okay? He died when the full penalty of the law was carried out. So when Jesus died to fulfill the law, He died too. That's where He goes in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. You've heard these words. You've memorized them. But that imagery, that imagery is absolutely shocking. I have been crucified. And we, we picture you know, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. I mean, crucifixion is a shocking picture. I mean, a brutal, barbaric death. As we picture Christ with nails piercing His hands and His feet, a crown of thorns ripping apart He's ripping apart his head, pool of blood on the, on the ground as he fights against suffocation. Now, if you've ever seen that the passion of the Christ and your, your imagination has been shaped by these images, Paul says that's what's happened to him. That's what's happened to us. We have died a cruel and painful death with our Savior. And so our, our our union with Jesus is a spiritual union. His experience becomes ours. The life we once lived is dead. So what died? You're, you're all sitting there. I'm standing here. What actually died? What was crucified? Well, so the way of the world, the power of, of sin, and any attempts to rebuild what has been torn down by the grace of God. You're striving to earn God's favor. You're 
working out your salvation because you believe it is yours to work out. Your accomplishments that you may think you know, sort of distinguish you in the eyes of God. This, this is dead. Yeah, but there's something else that's dead. We've been crucified with Christ. Our best efforts are dead and our worst failures are dead. Don't miss that part. I think this is why so many disciples of Christ will not grow. They will not mature in the faith. Because this is hard to believe. We don't grasp the, the depths, the riches of this union. Your worst efforts, the wrongs you have committed, the guilt over sin is dead. And the shame, church, think of the shame. How the accuser loves to keep us in shame. You should have said something. You could have stopped it. You went there again and you know it. You brought this upon yourself. This wouldn't have happened if you weren't like this. So we carry this shame over sin that we have committed like a ball and chain through life. All that wants to find us is dead. Crucified with Christ. Dearly loved pastor, brother in the Lord, he said, isn't it great to be dead? I was thinking I probably should have you know, given the sermon that title, and a little more catchy. Isn't it great to be dead? Um, you know, just, uh, wow. It's great to be dead from all the guilt and the shame of our sin. And a law that says, do this, do this, do this, and it's never done, ever. United to Christ, our efforts, our accomplishments do not distinguish us. Our failures do not destroy us. Consider that. Believe that. Rejoice in what once defined you apart from Jesus is dead. And then Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So here's an interesting question. Uh, if you died and Jesus is alive in you, who are you? You died, Jesus is alive in you, who are you? So let's break that down just a little bit. Jesus, we know, is the divine Son of God. He is you know, the Word made flesh. So we're not all Jesus. Okay, we're not all little gods. Think of the, the film, The Avatar, the Avatar experience where you're you know, encased in the electrodes and you sort of merge into His being. That's not, that's not the picture we have here. But everything that is true of Jesus is true of us. So Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive, so we are alive. Freed from the slavery of sin and, and death that cannot hold us. So if Christ lives in me and Christ lives in you, then we are sons and daughters along with Jesus. He, the only begotten Son, we as adopted sons and daughters, but it's inheritance that we share. And Paul wrote in Colossians 3, Christ is my life. Okay, think about the life of Jesus for a moment. You can just sort of scroll through the Gospels and Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is out in the wilderness and He's tempted by Satan and He resists those attacks through the Word of God. So have we. He responds with compassion and wisdom and grace. I mean, that perfect balance of truth and love. So have we. 
in union with Christ. Think how Jesus is mocked, betrayed. He doesn't respond with you know, reviling, lashing out. So have we in union with Jesus. What's true of Him, true of us, He is our life, and that is what the Father sees. It was John Bunyan that gave us this picture of a two-sided mirror. So when we look at one side, we go, ugh. We, we see the, the wrinkles and the warts and the failures. Kind of that, that, that old man image. But on the other side of that mirror is the image of Christ in all of His perfection in all of His goodness, in all of His beauty. And that is the side that the Father sees when He looks at His children. All the time for the Christian. Alive in Christ. That's who we are. The life that we now live spiritually joined with Jesus. He is ours. We are His. And I want to acknowledge a little tension that comes with that, with this union language. Uh, We're united to Christ by uh, the Spirit alive in Him, we don't stop being the unique individuals that we are. That's really important for us to, to keep in mind. Uh, each one of us, an image bearer of God with our unique gifts, with our unique temperaments. Um, Christ in you is still you. Jesus is not deforming you, but He is shaping, He's reforming into His perfect image. But it's you it's you that's still you. He delights in that. He delights in what makes you you. So as we put sin to death, as we, as we die to self, which we can actually do now because we died with Jesus, it doesn't get rid of our uniqueness, our temperament. So as a, as a body in Christ, where we're alive with Christ, uh, we're all very different, and that's something that is a good thing that we can celebrate. Um, so how do we live in this union? Paul tells us the second part of the verse. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So we're justified by faith, and we also live by faith. And saving faith has been described in, in different ways uh, by different folks. It has an, an intellig- uh, intellectual component to it, things we must know and understand. It has a relational component. There's a trust that goes with saving faith. Uh, But I really like this description of faith that I read from Rankin-Wilburn. He says that faith is a gift of God that enables us to take hold of the reality that God has taken hold of us. It's finding our identity in Christ. I'll say that again for those who want to jot that down. Faith is a gift of God that enables us to take hold of the reality that God has taken hold of us. It's finding our identity in Christ. So it would seem that a life of faith is continually recalling its union with Jesus. It's real identity. And this, you know, the status of Jesus, the status of Christ becomes our status. That is something that does not change. I mean, we're as loved by God now as we ever will be. Though our identity, our status does not change, our ability does. By faith, and the very power of the resurrection is at work in us to fight the battle against sin. 
This is the power of God. Think of that illustration. If, if you were to walk into an elevator, well, let's just say the whole church walked into an elevator, really big elevator. Well, how, how is this, where is the power going to come from for this elevator to take us to the next floor? Well, it's going to come from a strong motor and a cable attached to that elevator box. It's not going to come from me or, or anyone else in this room inside that elevator. The power of faith is not in the, the strength and the degree of faith. Okay? It's in the one who, is, who we're trusting in. The one who we put our faith in. It's in His power. Okay? The, the cable to keep that picture. So our blessing, our, our growth, our joy does not come in our own strength, but in relying on the power of God. We live by faith. And so the status quo then changes. The status quo for our neighbors or some family members and friends, the normal of sort of the self-improvement, seek personal peace, affluence, the comparison game, that is no longer our status quo. We need none of that. We live by faith. We're united to the Savior of the world as every thought, word, and deed uh, has been credited to us. You know how mind-blowing that is? How we approach life. And here, here's a major implication. Um, by faith, now we can respond to the love of God. We've, we've died to the law. Its demands have been satisfied. But that doesn't mean we trash the law. Instead, we treasure it. Now we see this law as you know, the beautiful grace of God that it is in our lives. It's a lamp for us, the very means of our loving God and living for Him. And think about all the means of grace that God gives to us. Sitting here under the preached Word, the fellowship of the church body, praying to God individually and together, going to the table. So we have opportunity to do that. You know, all of these graces that God gives to us means to nourish the faith that acts in obedience. And all these things flow out of a new identity in Christ. So the spiritual disciplines, all those things that I just mentioned, they're not earning blessing from God, but they guide us in the path where these blessings, where God's grace is secure. And shortly before John Bunyan's death, he answered a question. I think it's a a common question because it seems logical on the surface. And the question is, is, if you keep telling people that God loves them, if you keep telling them that God forgives them, then they're just going to do whatever they want. And Bunyan turned and he responded to that question. He said, no. No, not for the people of God. When you tell the people of God how much God loves them, when you assure them of that, They'll do whatever He wants. That, that is the motivation of grace. That is the motivation of the Gospel. Do you know who you are? It really will determine how you live. How you respond to the graces of God in your life. So as we wind down here, did you pick up on the, on the personal language here that Paul uses? He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So the Creator of the cosmos 
has lavished His love specifically upon you. This is personal. This is intimate. Substitute Himself for you. And now there is new life. Dr. Phil Riken said, we'll never know our true identity. We'll never find our true selves until we find ourselves in Christ. It's the only way for a truly good, a truly healthy self-image. It's personal. Who are you? You're a child of God. Your life is hidden with Christ by faith. And now you can take your own temperament, your own gifts, and join the chorus of praise and thanks to God. You have nothing to hide. You have nothing to prove. You're secure in Jesus. So the, the innovative, determined, hardworking Elon Musk, he claims to have no religious beliefs. He said, I didn't even pray when I was dying of malaria. Um, didn't need to pray. He'll work it out. Make his own way. And I fear, we're rightly saddened, that to think that the billionaire, maybe someday trillionaire, has no idea of his real identity of who He is before the Creator God. His greatest need, our greatest need, the greatest need of any, anyone you, you've ever known is justification before God, acceptance and peace with Him. And so the wages of sin is still the same. Still the same, whether it's here on planet Earth or you know, a colony on Mars where Musk is the chief. C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal. We are accountable to God and we will wake from the sleep of death and stand before Him with what? With what? What claim do we have to the eternal inheritance that's undefiled, unshakable? The Lord knows us. The Lord sees us. He knows our true identity and a life lived in the flesh by faith stands before God with arms, hands empty. Saying, God, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. And the Father looks with a smile. He says, yes. When I look at you, I see Him. Come, enter your rest. Father, what a glorious truth that we are united to our Savior. And when you see us, you see the King, you see our Good Shepherd. We are robed in His righteousness. In Him we have died. In Him we have new life. May we live in this new life today. All we have is Christ. And that is more than enough. We pray this in His name. Amen.